Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 72 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. I'm Chris. And we have our favorite mystery man with us today, John Valerie. I think he's our only man. I was going to say. Unless he's a This is a mother move, you guys. It's just like how I say about my son. He's my favorite son, and my daughter's my favorite daughter, because I have conveniently one of each. So. Oh, that would feel special. <laughs> John has been with us on episodes 25, 49, and 60. Yeah. So, so you're going to fall in love with him. So if you weren't around to hear those episodes, you have more you can go back to and enjoy when this yes. one's over. Now, John is, he's our mystery man because he is a mystery reviewer. He is a mystery critic, a mystery cultural treasure here oh. in Connecticut. <laughs> It's And we, we feel very fortunate that you take the time to come in and talk with us about mystery books that you recommend. So for those of you who don't know John, he does review and write he writes pieces for um, Mystery Scene magazine, Criminal Element, a host of other magazines and online outlets. Um, and you have a new one. That you just started I writing for. I do. I now review for the New York Journal of Books, so that's exciting. Very cool. And the, your first review there just came out because I just read it today. Oh, yes, it did. Yeah. They had that up like pronto. <laughs> I like, sent it to somebody at 8 o'clock at night, and I swear, in five minutes it was live on their website. And I was like, wow, I'm yeah, not used cool. to that. <laughs> they move fast. <laughs> they really do. Those online people. Wow. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, so you can uh, hear John. You could read John. Oh, why would you want to? I <laughs> Emily already told you which episodes to avoid. <laughs> yeah, and that was... 25, 49, and 60. He will make you laugh. We have been delayed in our start-off because we were already talking about boobs and all sorts of things. So who knows what's coming, you guys? I don't know, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have to recommend for us today, John? Oh, I have plenty books. to recommend books. books. Oh, well, that narrows, narrows the field greatly. So I figured I went like all the way back to October because we haven't done this, I think, since the end of summer. Um, so I'm just going to give you a recap of the books that really interested me. And like I said, speed me up if you need to. You can just tell me to shut up. I don't take offense. We want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> One of the few. <laughs> That's why I keep coming back. Nobody says that. <laughs> it's usually, shut up. <laughs> Speak less. All right, so my first recommendation is a book called River Bodies by Karen Catcher. I had never read her before. It was just one of those books that ended up in my pile, and so I decided to review it for Criminal Element. I like to try new things occasionally, and it was fabulous. It was like a really quiet book, but captivating, and apparently it's the start of a new series called the Northampton County Series. And I believe there's going to be a second book coming out this summer. Uh, but the premise is basically this. There's a 20-year-old cold case which heats up when a body is discovered in the small town of Portland, Pennsylvania. So our protagonist is Becca Kingsley. She's just come home. She's caring for her dying father, which, you know... Not a, not a very happy occasion. And this new crime brings back memories of one that happened, you know, 20 years ago when she was a much younger person. And then we have a lead detective on the case named Parker Reed. He was Becca's long ago love interest. And now he is 
in charge of the investigation, and he's intent on connecting this new case to the case in the past. And Becca also realizes that she has dangerous knowledge not only of what just transpired, but also what happened 20 years ago. Uh, so it's a crime story. It's a family drama. Just really, really well done. Like I said, it's kind of a quiet story, but you find yourself so immersed in it that you're done with the book before you even realize how hooked you are. Ooh, so she's become like nice. one of my must-read authors, and I had not even known her name. Oh, I love I it. Love when they so yeah, yeah, River Bodies, that was nice. pretty cool. I'm putting my card down very gently. I have note cards, and apparently I do bad things with them. Yeah, John, <laughs> just so you guys can get a picture here, a visual. John has index cards. He's a big user of index cards, which I admire because I love index cards. But he thumps them. I thumped them like this, repeatedly, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> So but now you know what that sound was in all those episodes. <laughs> we're trying to train him. So, so. Chris, Chris, the editor and keeper of the mic rolls, gave him a little I got talking, talking to. to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be better, but, you know. You can do it. That'll we're last not. all of five minutes. <laughs> so, anyway, my next recommendation, also from October, appropriate enough. And this is different. It's a movie tie-in. I don't oh. read a lot of those. Um, but there was a new Halloween movie out in October with Jamie Lee Curtis, which was awesome because, you know, it was supposedly her final confrontation with Michael Myers. Yeah. Forty years later, they erased the entire history of the franchise with the exception of the first movie. But there is actually a really great movie tie-in novelization by John Passarella. I tend not to be a huge fan of those because I think a lot of times they're money grabs and they're not necessarily particularly well written. Mm -hmm. And this one was the opposite mm. of that. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's um, he's done a lot of work, I think, in you know horror. I don't think he's done a movie tie-in before. This might be his first. Maybe that's why it was <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was a really fleshed out story which I liked and the nice thing about this book um, was that it was based on the shooting screenplay that they had for the film so not the actual film so there are scenes and sequencing in the book that didn't actually make it into the final film or that you know were altered when you actually see it the nice thing is you know with the movie it has to be short it has to keep your attention not that the book doesn't but they cut a lot out and so you know that there are these deleted scenes some of them you get to see on the DVD but they're all included in the book because the author didn't know that they were going to be cut during editing so you get the fuller story so there's a lot more emotion there's character motivation so I really enjoyed that I felt like it was a really good companion piece to the movie so you know I watched the movie I read the book and then together it was kind of a really cool cohesive unit very cool yeah a little horror yeah, yeah a little yeah. bit of horror yeah yeah John is mystery thriller horror he's written horror too we didn't mention that but he is a short story writer occasional what was the name of the, the book Oh, let's see if I can get it right this time. Um, Tricks and Treats. That's right. A collection of spooky stories by Connecticut authors. So yes. I have to tell you, you bring this up, and I had to write a bio for that New York Journal of Books things, and I had a friend edit it because they're like, can you do a longer version that's like 200 words? And I'm like, I cannot. What do I have to say that's 200 words long? I'm not that impressive. <laughs> and so I sent it to my friend to, you know, take a look at before I submitted it, and I got the title of that book wrong. <laughs> Like, everything's great about the title of our book that you mangled. <laughs> it's like you knew that, Chris. What can I well, say? Well, who knows? I could have gotten it wrong again. I'm... I'll make sure to get it right in the show notes. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that was right. I'm very quietly putting it's my very good yeah. Oh, thank you. You were kind enough to review it. We I really was, appreciated yeah. that. And as I said, it made my Connecticut basement seem even creepier. <laughs> yeah. Well, just wait for the day that John is in your basement, you know, with your... 
Funny, creepy. Yeah. Creepy, but, creepy. Okay, move on. All right. So <laughs> next book, also October, uh, We the Jury by Robert Rothstein. I'd never heard of him before either. And apparently he practices intellectual property law and has a lot of celebrity clients. But the book is not that kind of law. It's, you know, you more kill them and spill them and... Are you guilty or are you not? But anyway, the defendant here is David Sullinger. He is accused of killing his wife on the eve of their 21st wedding anniversary. Axe to the head killing. Oh, wow. Yes. But the really cool thing that I found about this book is it's told from more than a dozen perspectives. So it's not your traditional trial story. You see the perspective of the judge the lawyers, the jury, other people involved in the case, um, which was really compelling because everybody sort of has a different bent on what's going on, and you think you know, and then you realize you don't know anything. Yeah, is it like 800 pages long? It wasn't. It, it was pretty short. I don't even think it was 400. It might have been like 300-ish. Wow. So it was a really quick read, just very interesting and done differently, and it's nice to see you know, one of those books done differently because a lot of times legal thrillers tend to be you read one, you know, you've sort of read them all. Uh, so this was pretty cool. And, of course, there's fun accusations of abuse, adultery, incest, you know, just to <laughs> lighten the mood. And also contradictory testimony from his children. So it's, you know, which was the bad parent? You know, yeah. who was abused? Who wasn't? Uh, and then, too, it makes us think about our own bias and objectivity and how we view evidence. So interesting read. I would read him again. I think he actually co-wrote something with James Patterson. He got a nice blurb from James Patterson for the book, but I really did like that, the use of multiple perspectives. So I love a good legal thriller, but I'm not huge on the blood and guts. So other than someone's head being axed, (laughs) is there a lot of blood and guts? I wouldn't say it was overly gratuitous, and a lot of it was just a recounting of what happened. Uh, I don't think anybody will really be offended. If you can hear me say that, you know, it was done with an axe, (laughs) maybe about as bad as it gets. I'm going to check that one out. That sounds great. Yeah, it was really interesting. I was glad I read it. Uh, So I'm moving into November now, and I have a true crime book. Emily and I were talking a little bit about JFK while Chris was using the facilities. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, no. Secrets Um, being told. (laughs) I was, I washed my hands. Move on. And and filled Emily's cup with water. I did. Sure. So anyway, I've probably mentioned some Kennedy books in the past, but one of the things that really interests me is his assassination and the theories surrounding that case. And I've probably read dozens, if not a hundred or more books about that in my time. So it's, there's not often one that makes me stand up and say, oh, that's different. But I found one that did make me say, oh, that is really different. (laughs) So it was a book called The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of the JFK Assassination by Christopher Fulton. I had not heard of him. I had not heard of the book. Uh, And then I started to see it show up on the internet, you know, Facebook, where you think about the JFK assassination and all of a sudden there's (laughs) ads everywhere about the JFK assassination. (laughs) But the really interesting thing about this, a lot of people don't know that after Kennedy's death, Robert Kennedy was considering a run for office. He was actually running for the presidency or uh, when he was killed. And he had come into evidence from the events of Dallas that he was keeping from the government, uh, you know, items pertaining to the assassination and what went down. And when he died, that property was transferred to Evelyn Lincoln, who was JFK's very loyal secretary uh, and very loyal to the family until her death. You know, as she got older, she made some friends and she started transferring some of that property to other people. And one of those items was a wristwatch that JFK was wearing when he died. And nobody seemed to know that he was wearing this watch. The Secret Service didn't know he was wearing this watch, which is why it didn't end up in their care. And it eventually ended up in Chris Fulton's possession. 
and he had it for a while. He did a lot of research. Uh, I believe it was a Cartier watch. And if you watch, you know, JFK, the film, you can actually see a scene in the beginning where you can see Kennedy wearing that watch. So they were able to legitimize it, authenticate, I guess yeah. is probably the word I'm looking for. Um, and it was a watch that Jackie had bought him for his anniversary. For whatever reason, you know, he didn't like it, didn't tend to wear it. She brought it to Dallas. He wore it that day. Another little interesting factoid, apparently they would take his jewelry and stuff and say that they were going to do, you know, radioactive testing to make sure that there was not, you know, nobody was trying to get to him through his jewelry and radiation poisoning. Wow. So before the motorcade, he had left all his stuff for the Secret Service to collect. She gave him that watch. He wore it. He was wearing it when he died. And then it made its way back into Robert Kennedy's possession after the assassination. And so long story Still long. <laughs> like, there's nothing <laughs> short about this. Uh, but anyway, Chris Fulton ended up with that in his property. He tried to sell it through auction. It became, the government became aware of it. And then it was all about how the government tried to re-seize, well, not re-seize because they never had possession of it, but anything having to do with the uh, assassination, they would try to confiscate and classify. And the reason wow. that this watch is important is because it was close to his body when he was shot. There was trace evidence on it. There was blood. There was brain matter. And they think that had testing been done on that watch, um, what they found could have contradicted what the Warren Commission found. It could have shown oh. compelling evidence of a different kind of bullet. Wow. And so Christopher Fulton, you know, unwittingly found himself at the center of all this, and he was sent to federal prison under sealed warrant and indictment and kept there for many years. Oh, my God. So wow. the first half of the book is the evidence, which really is jaw-dropping. Like I said, I've read a lot about the case, and this was completely new to me, and I was just, like, stunned. The second half of the book is a little bit different. It's more about his jail experiences, which are equally horrific in an entirely different way. The second half of the book, you know, very gratuitous, a lot of violence and language, but that really is what life is like in federal prison. But for anybody who's interested in learning more or reading something different about the JFK assassination, I highly recommend it, not because it's the most well-written thing that you'll ever read, but because the story is so astounding, but there are facts to back it up. Wow. Mm. I thought you were going to go somewhere totally different. I thought it was going to be like, the time on the watch was different than when they thought he died, so there was a time-space continuum. Well, when, I, when I was reading about the book, you know, there's all these little mentions of the watch, and I'm like, what could possibly be the importance yeah. of the watch? And then, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that could be huge. You know, that yeah. could completely devastate the government's case. And that was not the only thing, you know, that was in the possession of these people that was transferred from Evelyn Lincoln. There was a lot from Dallas. They were actually putting together a book, and the book had to be scrapped under threat of lawsuit because wow. they really shouldn't have had possession of those materials to begin with. Wow. So did does he own the watch now, or does the, did the government confiscate that watch? Um, I don't believe he owns the watch anymore. I cannot remember, honestly, what happened to it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? The things we don't know. Yeah. Wild, I tell you. And I will actually have another Kennedy book to recommend a little bit later, but not there yet because I'm going chronologically. I don't know why. I just <laughs> felt like I should. Because <laughs> I brain melded with you and maybe that I was said, it. I was afraid chronological not order, to. Chronological order. Because yeah. I love chronological order. Oh well, great. That's why. <laughs> Better reason. Uh, so another November book, "You Don't Own Me," uh, which was the fifth collaboration, I believe, between Mary Higgins Clark and Ella Fair Burke, and the sixth book in the Under Suspicion series. First book was written by Mary Higgins Clark alone before she realized it was going to be 
be a series, so that's why there are six books, but only five of them are collaborations. I won't go into a great deal about this, but what I find is I think that Alifair Burke brings sort of a more contemporary bent to the books. So it's it's sort of like the Mary Higgins Clark books from 20 or 30 years ago that are just a little bit more timely and a little bit more intense. Uh, still very much within her style, but they just have a little more oomph. Yeah. Did I enunciate that? Oomph. Oomph. Very. <laughs> I love nice. that word. So anyway, it's a nice mix of the professional and personal. There's always a case, you know, that has to be investigated. There's a TV series called Under Suspicion where they try to revive cold cases and figure out who did it by reuniting all of the persons of interest from that initial case, which is kind of a really cool, compelling, you know, premise, which I think is why it became a series when it wasn't expected to be a series but also to the main character uh, Lori Moran who is the producer of that show she's had a really terrific progression in her own personal story arc throughout the series and that very much continues in this book so nice mix of the personal and the professional so if you like Mary Haynes Clark you will like that okay Another November recommendation is An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by Helene Turston. Uh, She is a veteran novelist. You might know her from the Irene Huss series. I don't know her from that series because I haven't read it, but a lot of people seem to know the name. Anyway, this is a really small book. It's a collection of short stories that feature an 88-year-old woman named Maud. She's a Swedish woman who values her solitary existence above all, and she will kill to keep it. Yeah. You know what? I started that book. I loved it. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, she'll kill to keep yeah, the peace, like right? she Sounds has a ridiculous. really great attitude. I like her. Yeah. <laughs> she does. She's <laughs> she is. She's feisty and she's funny. And the cool thing is, you know, people tend to, I think, underestimate women of a certain age, and she completely uses that to her benefit I to get away it. with yeah. things. So I enjoyed that one a lot. You know, it was one of those books, again, I hadn't heard of her, but it just started showing up. Everybody was reviewing it and saying, oh, this is kind of clever and funny and different. So I read it and I said, oh, yeah, that is clever and funny and different. So I think you'll enjoy it if you finish it. And it's nice too because it's quick you know yeah. you're gonna read it you're gonna be done with it and there now we've covered short stories and it is a cute little book it's small you yeah. know and has like stitch work on the yeah it looks like stuff. stitch yeah. work <laughs> you could you know you could knock it out when you're like sitting in a parking lot just pull it out and read that book <laughs> don't do that and there's some background into john <laughs> yeah right <laughs> Oh my gosh, I have to tell you. So I was driving the other day and I went through like a drive through pharmacy at CVS and I had a book with me. Not for when I, I don't actually read when I'm driving. I really, really don't. Um, <laughs> but you know, my mom had an appointment. So I was like, oh, I'll have half an hour. Maybe I'll knock out a chapter. And I don't know why when I have books and I'm driving, I like belt them. <laughs> Which I know sounds ridiculous. So I'm like sitting at the drive through and the guy's looking at me and he's like, oh, that's a great idea. You know, you can just read it when you're stuck on Main Street in Middletown. I was like, you know, I probably could. <laughs> I read The Book Thief. That was not one of my recommendations because it's not really a mystery thriller, but I will say it was absolutely fabulous yeah. and I should have read it sooner. Yeah, Mark Zuzak. Zuzak, yeah. Yeah, a great book. Really good book. Really, really good. That was one that I read because I was working at the bookstore at the time. And, if, you know, young boys were coming in asking for it, girls, older women, like all of these different ages were coming in to, right. to request that book. And I was like, huh. I perked up and thought I need to read that, yeah. and I did. It was really good. Yeah, I didn't see the movie adaptation. Though. I haven't. It was good. It was pretty good. Was it? Yeah, yeah, the movie was actually good. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah. say it like that. Somebody <laughs> else said that though too, and it's like it, a it lot to live up to. So that's yeah. two people now in yeah. the last week who've told me it was worth seeing. Yeah. So we'll have to. Oh, yeah, we'll that's a good book. Yeah, have to have a movie night. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was. Yeah. It's worthy of its place. I'm a great American read. Apparently, we'll not talk about that. Okay. <laughs> 
they didn't on. they didn't have any will to gather. Oh. So it was a completely oh. illegitimate wow. exercise in my opinion. There you have it folks. <laughs> Even on our mystery man, Chris gets in will gather. <laughs> well, you know, as soon as it started to go south, I'm like, I think I know why. <laughs> That is terrible. Obviously, an oversight that should be rectified. Uh, yes. Yeah, we're going to have to petition her. What do we do? Can we petition? What can know. we do to make this better? Maybe we'll get our own TV deal. <laughs> <laughs> the Willa Cather years and years and, and years. years. <laughs> I don't know. That does just strike me as all kinds of wrong. Yeah, okay. I'll just... Mostly because I'm friends with you. I'm not qualified to make that statement, but I feel like you'll hurt me if I don't. <laughs> She picked up her water bottle. Oh, I did. I'm going to just drink and be quiet now. Drink and be quiet. All right. I'm probably going to butcher the name of the next author, and so I will apologize now. But another one of those books that I was not expecting to love so much that I didn't really know anything about was My Sister, the Serial Killer. I don't know if you've heard about yeah, that. Yeah, I've been seeing that everywhere. Yeah. 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 It's just, it was by um, an author named Oyinkin Brathwaite or something like that. I apologize to you. Whoever you are. But it was a really fun, funny murder mystery, which is nice to be able to say that about a murder mystery. But again, it was just kind of original, and it's nice to come across things that you don't feel like you've read 10 or 20 or 30 times before. Uh, so anyway, really, it's it's the tale of two sisters. So we have Kareed, who is the older sister. She's responsible. She's a nurse, and she has been quietly in love with her boss for a very long time. And she has a younger sister, Ayula, who has left a trail of dead boyfriends in her way. <laughs> I believe it starts with at least three. And then she has this habit of, you know, calling her older sister and saying, there's another one, <laughs> you know, help me clean it up because Kareed knows the power of bleach. Let me tell you, she is the smart oh one. You know, she gets things done, but she's starting to sort of get frustrated with her younger sister because she's just, she's very immature. Uh, she's a fashionista who is completely obsessed with social media uh, and doesn't really have any regard for, you know, the more weighty issues of life. And so... Kareed has been cleaning up these messes for years and years, well, for a time, anyway, to the point where she's even sort of dragged into an investigation and realizes, I could go down for this. I didn't kill anybody. I just, you know, cleaned the mess and helped dump the body. Oh, my God. <laughs> but that's what Otherwise family Otherwise known does. as an accomplice. <laughs> or family. Family. Sisters. Yes. But anyway, here's where it really gets interesting. So I told you that she was, you know, she's been quietly in love with her boss for a very long time. Well, her sister comes to visit her at work, and the boss happens to see the sister and takes an interest in the sister. Uh. And so the sister takes an interest back. And all of a sudden, Kareed is kind of like, what the hell? Like, I don't like this, you know, and if tradition holds, he's going to end up dead right. too. Yeah. Um, so she sort of reaches a point where how much will she take? When's she going to put her foot down? What's going to become of this whole little love triangle? So really interesting. Uh, it's a pretty short novel. And I think that may be due to the fact that the author has a history in poetry. That's where she got her start. So there's, you know, no wasted words, short I chapters, just that. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very original. So I would say, you know, funny, sparse, really, really cool to, you know, debut author, I guess you would say. So mm -hmm. if you're looking for something new, it's really interesting and it's not going to take you a ton of time. To read. That, that is fascinating. I don't think I've ever heard of a poet who wrote a serial killer novel. I know, and I don't think she was expecting to. <laughs> and then she did, and it yeah. kind of worked well for her, so I'm really interested to see what she does next. Yeah. Because um, that was a pretty memorable read. Moving on to December, we talked about a book, you know, related to the JFK assassination, but I also have one related to the RFK assassination. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called A Lie Too Big to Fail 
by Lisa Peace, who is a longtime researcher. Uh, she actually started researching the John F. Kennedy case, and then she ended up interested in Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Sort of the idea behind this book is exposing the hidden history of the RFK assassination, because a lot of people aren't aware of the contradictions that abound in that case. And quite honestly, they're more egregious than what you'll find in the JFK case. Really? I see. I don't know jack about that. And you will in a sec. I know. Most people don't. And then you read about it, and it's your jaw, you know, sort of hits the ground because it's like this was so blatant, so obvious. How have we quieted this up for, uh, what, 50 years now or more? What she exposes in this book is, one, witnesses with evidence of conspiracy that were silenced and or discredited without cause. Um, Also, evidence that was deliberately altered and or destroyed. The failure of the justice system and the media to present the truth of the case. And really, you can boil it down to two topics. First, the distance and direction of the bullets that killed Robert F. Kennedy. Sirhan Sirhan, who was the accused killer, was in front of Robert F. Kennedy and several feet away. And all of the witnesses who were there who gave testimony have established that fact. But the bullets that killed Robert F. Kennedy came from behind and were point blank. Wow. So Sirhan Sirhan did not fire them. Then also, in that pantry where he died, there were more bullets and fragments recovered than could have been fired from Sirhan Sirhan's gun. Clear evidence of that, because there were the bullets that entered the body, there were bullets that hit other people, there were bullets that struck walls and doorways. And so what the LAPD did was they confiscated some of that evidence and then they burned it. Wow. Yep, they literally incinerated it. There are pictures of detectives and FBI agents pointing to bullet holes that the LAPD later said didn't exist. Wow. It's crazy. Crazy. That is crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's it's just kind of insanity. So anyway, a really, really interesting book if you're not familiar with the RFK case because the evidence is very much contradictory. That's, that's crazy. Weren't you telling us at one point they were going to open up the case again? The JFK or the RFK case? Um, there's gonna, a movement online to open up the JFK case, RFK, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. You know, a lot of celebrities have signed petition in addition to people in the research community, educators, conspiracy theorists, which I would say at this point are, you know, more conspiracy realists. Yeah. Um, people <laughs> yeah. use the term theorist, you know, conspiracy theorist because it kind of undermines the whole idea of conspiracy, but there's the evidence to back it up. So there's sort of a movement for that, but I don't think that anything has necessarily happened with that. Yeah, and even the investigations, the reinvestigations that have been done haven't been followed up upon. There was an investigation in the 70s, the House Select Committee, who actually um, their finding was that JFK probably did die as the result of a conspiracy, and they, uh, they left it to the Justice Department to investigate that finding and the Justice Department did nothing. Mm-hmm. So there was a government body that said, you know, more likely than not it was a conspiracy and that you should look into this further, and the government yeah. didn't. Wow. Well, that's because a lot of people think the government's behind it. Right, right. Yeah. right. Yes. So, so crazy. It was a crazy time in our history, I think. It really was. I mean, everything changed. America changed in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It has not gone back. You know, we were like a war-driven society. Yeah. Getting into murky territory. Aren't yeah, right? totally. Interesting. Yeah. The book cougars are going to get, like, blacklisted. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be edited out. <laughs> 
So we'll move back safely into the territory of fiction. Uh, another December book, You're Dead by Chris Knopf, who is a Connecticut author. Um, he has written the Sam Aquillo Hamptons mysteries, but this one is a standalone uh, and very interesting. The main character is Dr. Waters, who is an organizational psychologist. He is another one of those characters who prefers a solitary existence. Uh, he was autistic as a child, and he actually had a brother who taught him to overcome the deficits of autism or to use them to his advantage. Uh, so, you know, there's an insight into his mind and I think why he found his way into organ organizational psychology. But anyway, what happens is, you know, he prefers a very quiet existence, but he comes home one day and he finds a decapitated body in his home. <laughs> that disrupts and, your life a little. Just a little. Um, <laughs> Imagine. No. I'm like, son of a bitch. I wanted to read my book. Put my feet up. That's like me all the time. Son of a bitch. All I want to do is read my book. I'll just step around it for now. <laughs> like, it's not there. Pretend you don't it's see it. It'll I'm still be a really good book. It's a page turner. <laughs> There's nothing worse when you just want to read. I know. It's all the time. Maybe not, you know, not as dramatically interrupted as that. Um, but the body is of his boss. Uh, oh, no. The plot thickens. Yes, the plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun. Well, now he doesn't have to go to work. All the more reason to read your book. Uh, he does because the widow of the boss, you know, really needs him to help figure out what's going on because they think that there's a connection between his murder uh, and the workplace. It's a high-tech aerospace company. Um, and it's just really interesting it's a very action-oriented book. It's a test of physical and mental acuity. And the character, Dr. Waters, is very interesting. You know, he was a weightlifter in his past. He's a poker player, so he's got that whole poker thing going down. And he's also become a student of human nature. So just a really, really interesting character. And all of those dynamics work its way into, you know, how he sort of figures out what's, what's going on. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, Sounds so it's good. cerebral, but it's also very action-oriented because bullets are just flying all over the place you know it's not a it's not a quiet investigation right. at all but Chris Knopf he's he's great I have to say he's one of those authors that really surprised me and he just seems to be getting better and better and better or maybe I'm just maturing I don't know <laughs> but I really appreciate his books these days awesome. I look forward to reading him I said that the last time we talked about him um, so many books so little time him, yeah. this yeah. would be a good one to start because it's a standalone right. so you don't have to you know go back eight or nine books Hey, He's look. also a dog lover. He is a dog lover. <laughs> yes. Sidebar. Sidebar. <laughs> These are very important things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the dogs don't die in his books. People. <laughs> yes. But not the dogs. Okay, so uh, January. Look, we're into 2019. My pile is getting smaller. So first recommendation from this year would be An Anonymous Girl by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen. I may have said that wrong, and I apologize again if I am butchering names. But you might remember last year they released A Life Between Us, which was a big bestseller. It's being made into a movie. And that was actually their first collaborative novel. So one of the authors is actually a veteran editor, and another one was a novelist by herself. But they teamed up, and they seem to have a really, really interesting partnership going. Uh, so I'm not going to tell you too much about the book just because these are books that, you know, if you need to, if you know too much of the plot, it's going to spoil it for okay. you. Um, but it's one of those ones you think you know what's going on and then you realize, oh, nope, don't know anything. And then you keep realizing that, no, you don't know oh, anything. Awesome. And, you know, for somebody who reads a lot of mysteries and thrillers, it's nice to sort of feel like you're off balance because mm -hmm. oftentimes you can predict what's going to happen. Yeah. And I just, I sort of gave up. Some of these, you know, I actually figured out a couple in this book, whereas the last one surprised me more, but it didn't ruin the experience at all. So anyway, a little bit of background. The character you're going to meet is 28-year-old Jess Ferris, who's a struggling makeup artist in New York City. She needs money, so she manipulates her participation 
participation in a study of morality and ethics that's being conducted by a, an esteemed psychologist. Uh, that psychologist is Dr. Lydia Shields. And based on the initial responses that she gets from Jessica, she decides to invite her to participate in situational social experiments, better paid. So, you know, the character is torn, but she really needs the money. You'll find out why when you read the book. So she decides to do this and she's put into positions where, you know, there are ethical and moral transgressions that might be made, but you realize that she might be transgressing, but so is the therapist. And they have a really interesting dynamic and it shifts between the first person and the second person. Uh, so the narrative that Jess tells is first person uh, and the second person is told from the doctor's point of view. And it sort of reminds you of that relationship between therapist and patient because there's sort of that distance mm -hmm. there and that cool. anonymity. So you really get drawn in and then you just, you don't know who's manipulating who. Or maybe everybody's manipulating everybody. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, they were around this area. I didn't get to go see them, but a friend of mine did, and she said they're really fun. I heard that, too. So if you get a chance, I mean, I would assume they're still on tour, or if their book tour is coming to an end, check for when it comes out in paperback, because... I think they'd be really fun to see from what I hear. So That's what I heard, too. Our yeah. friend Dylan from uh, Wesleyan in Middletown, oh, yeah. he went to the event in Madison, and he said they're like a comedy duo. He was yeah, like, you just like, do stand-up. You're so amusing. Yeah, yeah um, great. Oh, missed them, too. Regret. What can you do? I know. Can't be everywhere. That is true. Or anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So another January recommendation, The Perfect Liar by Thomas Christopher Green. And again, new author to me. He's been around for a while. And he tends to write now thrillers that are set in the world of academia, which is a world he knows well. He's been an instructor. He is more on the administrative side of things now. He actually founded a, an arts college in Vermont. Hmm. Yeah. And I never heard of him. Some people might recognize him from a couple of years ago. I think he had a big book called The Headmistress's Wife or The Headmaster's Wife. The Headmaster's Wife. Probably, you know, three or four years ago, which I think was sort of like a sleeper hit. But yeah, the book was recommended to me and I said, ah, all right, you know, I'm always looking for something new. I'll give it a try. And it was pretty fascinating. So anyway, we have an artist, Max W., who, like I said, he's an artist. He's a speaker, you know, very much sought after. People pay for his time and opinions and for his artwork. He started in New York City, which is where he met his wife, Susanna, and they ended up moving to Vermont. So a little bit of a difference between New York and Vermont, which is cool. There's a lot of sort of juxtaposition in the book, and that's just one of them, the different settings and how you're affected by the different settings. So he is teaching at a university in Vermont, and it's kind of, you know, a very posh setup for him. He's paid very well to not put in a ton of effort, um, but he's got a good thing going because he's also free to travel and, you know, collect speaking engagement fees. And his wife, how However, is often left at home just waiting for him to come back and she sort of has a, a panic disorder which tends to be triggered from time to time and so he comes home one day and they find a note affixed to the front door and it says I know who you are um, one, it's kind of cool because we're in a very digital sort of technology-based society. So to get back to the basics of like a note on a yeah. door. A little post-it. Yeah. A like, well-placed post-it. It's kind of simple, <laughs> but I think it's kind of yeah. creepy. Yeah. You know, and he does 
have a sordid past, which we're privy to a little bit. So the fact that somebody might actually know what that past is is very disturbing to him. But Susanna herself has secrets to keep. So does it pertain to him? Does it pertain to her? What does it all mean? Anyway, there are several more notes and maybe a couple of bodies. Um, but it all stems back to when Max W., was in New York City. He was initially named Phil Wilbur. He was an aspiring artist. He came across a man named Max Westmoreland, Max W., and there happened to be an opportunity where he's able to assume the other person's identity, uh, which is where the name Max W. comes from. Uh, another interesting juxtaposition is the juxtaposition between Max and Susanna, because Max is a very public person. He craves the attention, whereas Susanna is intensely private. Uh, and as I mentioned, that kind of attention sort of tends to trigger these panic attacks. So just really interesting. There's also the idea of art and identity. You know, what's the difference between the creator and the creation, which I found really, really interesting. And then also the desperate acts that will sort of undertake in an effort of, for self-preservation. Mm. So... Really That's interesting book. Yeah, and again, a standalone, so you know, you don't feel like you're gonna get roped into a long running series, but pretty fabulous. So he again, now he's on my list of people I must read. January, I have a cozy for you. Murder She Meowed by my friend. <laughs> I know you love that. We I love, love that these story, titles. Yeah. <laughs> so that's by Liz Magavro. She is a Connecticut author and she writes the positively, positively, sorry, organic mysteries. She's on book number seven now. I can't believe that's seven amazing. books yeah. in. But anyway, her protagonist is Kristen Stan Connor and she's getting married. Yay! Well, no. Bad <laughs> things happen when there's, you know, a wedding afoot. So one, there's, you know, family drama because she's a very simple person her fiance is very simple they just want to get married at his bar and call it a day but mom no mom says no it's got to be fancy and you have to invite a lot of people and then also her younger sister Caitlin is absolutely insistent that Stan must have a bachelorette party as much as Stan doesn't want one and finally just to you know stem the tears and cut the drama she says okay so they have a bachelorette party and something very bad happens there's a stripper found dead in the cake oh god <laughs> <laughs> and you want to read the book right then, right? I mean, what more do you, what more do you have to say? Dead stripper and a cake. Must have been a big cake. Must have. I know. I'm like, you know, there aren't a lot of things that would make me not want to eat a cake. That might do it. Right. Depending on, you know, maybe not the outer piece. I'll take the outer piece. Oh my god. I watched. Okay, this is total sidebar. But Laura and I watched a Melissa McCarthy movie called Spy. Have you guys seen yes. Spy? Spy. That was yeah. Funny. She plays an agent who is usually behind the scenes and she bakes cakes. And there's a scene with all these agents starting to eat a cake and there are rat droppings on it. Because <laughs> one of the themes throughout the movie are rodents right. at CIA headquarters. So I'm sorry, rodent poop and a cake and dead prostitute and a cake. It just was a theme, I thought. Well, you know, sometimes what you don't know yeah. or what you pretend not to know. I mean,. <laughs> If it's cake on the line, I will overlook a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe in a body. If you can flick it off, you can still read it. That's right. <laughs> That's not blood, it's red dye. Um, so anyway, to make matters worse, not only is there a stripper in the cake, but it happens at her place of business. So she's very distraught because... You know, she's worked very hard to achieve this dream, and she feels a very strong sense of, uh, what's the word? 
what's the word I'm looking for? How would you feel if, you know, there's a dead body found in your new business that's just violation? Oh, she feels yeah, very much violated. violated. So, one, she has the motivation to sort of solve the crime because she wants to reclaim that space as her own. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also, you know, knows the stripper. It's a small town, so he was doubling as a delivery person. So she knew him when she looked in the cake. She was like, ah, crap. I know him, and not just from his, you know, sparkly red panties. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so she sort of has, you know, a double motivation to try to solve the crime, uh, which is interesting. And then there's all that wedding drama that I talked about. So it's fun because, again, there's the case, but there's also a lot of personal growth, which I guess there needs to be. I should also say if anybody's fans of, uh, you know, Lisa Holstein, the reviewer, Mm -hmm. uh, she posted on her blog a list of, you know, I don't know, it was like a top 10 list of things that happen in Cozy Mysteries. And it's just so self-aware and funny that you should just look it up. You know, I mean, if you're an entrepreneur moving to a small town, bad news. If a cat adopts you as its owner, bad news. If you have a new love interest, bad news. All right, I'll look for that and put it in the show notes. Oh, yeah, it was just, it was funny. And if you read a lot of cozies, you're going to say, oh, yeah, spot on. Okay, moving into February. So The Next to Die by Sophie Hanna, who is one of my favorite writers from across the pond. Uh, She actually, she writes the new Poirot novels, but before she was doing that, she was a very successful novelist overseas. Uh, She writes standalones, but also series books. So this is uh, a continuation of her Simon Waterhouse and Charlie Zaylor books, and they're a married detective couple. But the nice thing about this book is you can easily read it as a standalone. There's sort of a secondary plot um, that will satisfy people who are visiting the book for the characters. But if you're just looking for an interesting premise, you will be completely you know, satisfied if you have not read those Charlie and Simon books previously. But the protagonist is a stand-up comedian named Kim Trebek. And the thing I find funny is Sophie Hanna is very witty and amusing. So I think a lot of that is able to come out in this book just by virtue of what the character does. But she finds herself at the center of a very bizarre police investigation. There's a case known as Billy Dead. Deadmates. <laughs> Love it, right? <laughs> Billy Deadmates. What does that mean? There is an unsub who's apparently going around targeting pairs of best friends. So pairs of best friends are dying, and we don't know why. And the MO is that each person has been given um, a small white book containing a line of poetry before they died. So these wow. books are being found at the crime scene. So where did they come from? Who sent them? And, you know, in a true The Plot Thickens moment, our protagonist, Kim, realizes that somebody also had given her one of those books after one of her stand-up gigs. So then she asks herself, why am I still alive when all these people are dying? Uh, So it's just really, really interesting Mm. book. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but the ending is one that like true book lovers will just love. Other people might think it's a little bit absurd. I would say absurdly amusing, which is not, you know, a bad thing. So you'll have to read it and let me know what you think. I was thinking like, oh, that's one of those, you know, books about a book. Or books within a book. Yeah, yeah. which is always fun. Uh, and Sophie Hanna is just wild. Like, I don't know if you've read her or not, but she's one of the very few authors that I don't even try to figure out because I know <laughs> that I can't. So I'm like, I'm not even going to put in the effort because she's just beyond me. Wow, um, that's cool. cool. Another cozy for you, Final Exam by Carol J. Perry. This was a release in February. Uh, she was born in Salem on, I believe, Halloween Eve, which yeah. is kind of, a, <laughs> yeah. kind of fitting for the books that she writes. She lives in Florida now, but she is from Salem and she writes The Witch City Mysteries. This is her eighth book. And they center around a character named Lee Barrett, who is the on-air field reporter for WICH TV. Witch TV. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love that, right? 
<laughs> but anyway, so this book, you know, she and her camera person get a tip. And so they go out to the quarries and they start to hear that a vintage red Mustang was found submerged in water. Possibly with a body inside. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, and so anyway, the authorities suspect foul play. And it turns out that there is indeed a murder victim. His name is Ted Thorne. He went missing in 1974. And he was uh, Lee's aunt's boyfriend at the time. So back in 1974, he was dating Aunt Ibby who Lee now lives with, because uh, Lee was orphaned young, so Aunt Ibby raised her, and now Lee sort of has an attic apartment, and Ibby is on the ground floor. And so they're very, you know, interconnected, they're very close, and it just so happens that Aunt Ibby is planning her 45th high school reunion with five close friends, all of whom have ties to the murder victim. So it's one of those things where everything sort of comes full circle, and these people who've been wondering for 45 years what happened with their friend, they find out, but you also have to ask is the suspicion it's who did it why mm, interesting yeah there's good. a little yeah. yeah it was it was interesting there's some supernatural elements to it not ridiculously over the top yeah. you know they're kind of subtle so uh, I've read a couple lately there was a Christmas book of hers that I read uh, you know around December and that was amusing too so she was a new author to me new series to me again you don't have to start at the beginning but if you like a cozy and you like sort of that atmosphere of Salem mm-hmm. it's kind of fun that's cool I'm sure there is a good cemetery theme or two in oh, one hour. Oh, they got to wander around yeah. the cemeteries and they have to go buy incense and, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever. There's a cat that has some psychic abilities. Nice. <laughs> but fun. Does Nathaniel Hawthorne ever make an appearance? You know, I don't yeah. think in the two books that I've read, but I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in, like, the other six. Yeah. yeah. The Ghost of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Okay. <laughs> that might be the next title. For all I know, that might be a title. <laughs> Okay, so my last recommendation for my own recent reading, this book came out in March. It actually, I think, just came out last week, The Stranger Diaries by Ellie Griffiths. Uh, and this is her first standalone novel. A lot of readers might know her from the Ruth Galloway series, or she's also written the Magic Men series, um, which are very popular, critically acclaimed. I think she's one of those authors that she, again, is a little bit better known overseas, but she has a pretty good following in America as well. So she'd been on my radar for a really, really long time, and I just I hadn't gotten around to reading her, and I didn't want to immerse myself in sort of a new long-running series. Mm-hmm. But then this standalone popped up, and I got to review it for you know the New York Journal of Books. I figured that's a good place to start. It's a new author, first standalone, my first review for them. So I said, yeah, that's got a lot going for it. I'll give it a try. And it was really, really interesting because it sort of mixes classical and modern sensibilities. I will tell you why. So the main character is Claire. I know, dum-dum. ridiculous. (laughs) The drama. The protagonist is Claire Cassidy. She is a high school English teacher and also an aspiring biographer. So the person that she wants to write about is R.M. Holland, who is a deceased author. And he wrote a short story called The Stranger. It figures very prominently throughout the book because we realize that life is imitating art a little bit, or maybe art is imitating life. You get pieces of that story in fragments throughout the narrative, and then it's in its entirety at the end. So you get the gothic sort of novel, and there's also Victorian because he lived in a house that's now the school where she teaches, um, that they think is haunted. So there's that kind of cool atmosphere. So it's, you know, it's the gothic, it's Victorian, it's modern and contemporary. It's a little mix of all things. But anyway, another uh, teacher at the school is killed. She is stabbed to death, and so our main character, Claire, is sort of drawn into that. They don't know, is she a suspect, or is somebody just pulled her into the center of this case, and if so, why? There is also a detective sergeant 
Harbinger Cower, and she is a really interesting character herself because she sort of sees herself as having something to prove because she's a minority on three counts. She's a woman, she's an Indian, and she's gay, so she really feels like she has something to prove. So she's a go-getter, very kind of aggressive. So she and Claire initially do not get along very well because it's just very in-your-face type of investigation. But then, you know, as things start to develop, they sort of have this more friendly relationship as opposed to the antagonistic relationship. But you wonder, is it genuine or are they manipulating each other? Because, you know, Claire wants to know what the detective knows. The detective wants to know what Claire knows. So it's just an interesting dynamic. And then to throw in a third perspective, Claire has a 15-year-old daughter named Georgie. And so the perspectives alternate between Claire, our detective sergeant, and then Georgie. And everybody sort of has a different part of information that you sort of need to know, but not everybody knows everything. So you're seeing the same events through different eyes. Um, and also you're realizing that the information, there's information that people know that they're not fully disclosing to others. So it's a great way to sort of keep you off balance. Uh, so there's three different perspectives, but there's also uh, Claire's diaries are excerpted throughout the book, as well as the snippets from the story called The Stranger. So if you like that kind of thing, it's just, it's fun. Um, it's so, like I said, it's a mix of Gothic, Victorian, and moderate, and it stands alone. It's getting really, really good word of mouth. It was one of those books where I was not necessarily surprised by the ending. I don't know if that, I don't think it made it any less satisfying for me. So when I reviewed it, I had to say that, but I sort of feel bad because I feel like if you read a lot of that type of book, you're a little bit more in tune maybe mm -hmm. than people who aren't. Right. So I don't know if that's a valid criticism or not. It didn't ruin the book at all for me, but I was not like, oh my God, my jaw didn't drop. <laughs> but it was still a really yeah. satisfying story overall. And she is definitely an author. If I had a little bit more time, I'd be happy to sort of go back and revisit some of her prior works. I've been seeing that book around a lot. Um, yeah, it's online on library. It's here. We're actually the Portland Library in Connecticut. I don't know if we said that earlier no, where we, we were, but I saw it on display up front. Yeah, because it has a haunted. Well, it's not a haunted house, but it has the vibe of a yeah, haunted it's a cool house cover. cover. Yeah, very atmospheric, right? yeah. which I like. Yeah, you know, the place is definitely a character, which is always fun. Yeah. yeah. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to give you just a couple of recommendations of upcoming reads that you might be looking forward to. So Excellent. I want to take you from March to June, but it's cool. really quick. I only have five. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so first book is A March Release, Blood Oath by Linda Fairstein. And I'm recommending this one. I haven't read it yet, but it is her 20th Alex Cooper novel, which wow. is kind of an accomplishment. She's been doing this for a long time now. And actually, I think it's a lot of people see it as a return to form because her protagonist is a sex crimes prosecutor, very much based on the life that Linda Fairstein led because she too was the sex crimes prosecutor in Manhattan. So Alex, her character, lives that life. But she's had some really traumatic things happen to her in recent books. So she's been on a leave of absence from the office. So she goes back to the office. So she's finally back, you know, prosecuting, which I think a lot of the longtime readers will appreciate because that's what they most know the character from. So the case is Alex is in touch with a young woman named Lucy, who testified years earlier at a landmark federal case, and she now comes forward to reveal that she was sexually assaulted by a very prominent figure in that case. So it's really timely. You know, it brings up the Me Too movement, the problems with delayed disclosure, and then, of course, the media portrayals of these people. You know, is it legitimate? Is it not legitimate? Uh, so I think it's a very, very timely book. And then, as always, Linda Fairstein likes to explore different institutions throughout New York. That's sort of like the hallmark of the books is she'll take you behind the scenes of all these cool places. So this time it's Manhattan's Rockefeller University, which is a premier research institute and hospital. 
Hmm. She's going to be at RJ, Julia, and Madison. She is, and I think she has a Connecticut event in Simsbury as well. Um, But, yep, she'll be coming around. So 20th Alex Cooper, (laughs) hard to believe. So moving forward, an April book, The Eighth Sister by Robert Dugoni. This is a great book if you like espionage and international thrillers, which that's not really my thing. But if in the right hands, I find that I actually enjoy them. Um, And Robert Dugoni is one of those authors who he's been around for a long time, but he just in the last couple of years has been on my radar. And I've read a couple of books and they've all been fantastic. And again, typically things that I might not read. This book, you know, it was envisioned as a standalone, but I hear that there's actually going to be another book or two, depending on how readers respond to it. So just know that going in, it stands alone, but there will probably be more to come. It's about a former CIA case officer named Charles Jenkins. He is at a crossroads in life. He is in his 60s. He has a younger wife with a baby on the way and his business is on the brink of financial collapse. So, you know, he's uh, feeling kind of desperate. A little stressed out, a little bit, as they say. Just a tad. He ends up being reactivated by his former bureau chief and he is sent to Moscow to locate a Russian agent who's believed to be killing members of a secret U.S. spy cell known as the Seven Sisters. Dun, dun, dun. Russia obviously is very big in the news. So it's interesting because you spend a significant amount of time in Russia. And the author, you know, he's visited there in the past and he did just a lot of research to try to capture the atmospheric details of that. So really, really interesting. And uh, readers who've read earlier books might be interested to know that Jenkins is a secondary character that uh, was actually featured in Dugoni's earlier David Sloan series. David Sloan was a lawyer, a defense lawyer, and he actually is a secondary character in this book. How fun. Um, That is neat. Yeah, so that was really interesting, and I don't want to ruin anything, but I will say towards the end of the book, there is a very compelling trial sequence that people will enjoy. And Robert Dugoni was a trial attorney for many years before he wrote novels, so he definitely, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He brings the goods. Ooh, I love it. Another April release is Bluff, by Jane Stanton Hitchcock. Um, and again, a completely new to me author, but yeah. a fabulous a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love the name. The name yeah. is just awesome. Is she related, do you know? I don't believe so. Okay. I'm, I'm sure I would have known that from the press material, so, yeah. so I don't think so, okay. but great name nonetheless. Anyway, the author herself is an avid poker player. She <laughs> competes in the World Poker Tour and the World Series of Poker. So she sort of takes that experience and she weaves it into her book. The case at hand is about a former socialite named Maud Warner, who's also known as Mad Maud. So one day she enters a swanky New York City restaurant. She shoots Son Sunderland, who is the Pope of Finance, and then in the melee she escapes. She literally walks out the door, gets in a cab, and is gone. And the assumption is that she actually meant to hit Son Sunderland's lunch companion, Bert Sklar. He is oops. very... Yeah, oops. <laughs> oops. Um, because Bert Sklar, uh, he is a shady accountant who actually built Mad Maud's mom out of a very significant amount of money. So they just think, you know, she meant to shoot that one. She got the wrong one instead. Whether or not that's true, I will not tell you. But what I will tell you is, one, the book is a satire of high society, which the author knows very well. So it's really, really funny. But the great thing about it is completely grounded in poker because Mad Maud literally has to bluff her way every step of the way throughout the book to try to get away with this. So it's completely grounded in the author's, you know, sort of newborn expertise uh, hmm. in poker. Very cool. I won't say expertise because she'd yell at me. She won't say she's an expert. But, you know, it's a game that she's taken up pretty recently, uh, and that's the foundation. But additionally, the author's own mother was the client of 
one of these skeezy Bernie Madoff uh, types. Yeah. So her yeah. mother was built out of a lot of money, as were many other celebrity okay. clients. So so it's sort of based in two things that she has personal knowledge and interest in. Uh, and it was just really great book. Short. You know, you get through it quickly. It's told through multiple perspectives. It's very intelligent, but really, really funny. And again, you know, you have a character who people tend to estimate because she's a woman of a certain age. Yeah. So, you know, she totally capitalizes on that and uses it to her advantage. It was one of those books that really, really took me by surprise, and I was really, really glad I read it because I'd never read anything quite like it before. Oh, Count me a Mad Mod fan. <laughs> I like that kind of stuff because I can't lie. I I'm a I just you know I start laughing. <laughs> you don't poke your face at all. <laughs> I know. My mom and Laura they both say your eyes twinkle when gives you, it away. You know I yeah. So yep. I like to read about people who can do those. Can get things, away with it, you know? hoping you'll pick up a trick or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might like that. I really really enjoyed it. It was one of those books that surprised me. I said, all right, there's a lot of that going on mm-hmm. tonight. So another April release. Here's an upcoming cozy for you, Biddy. Biddy, <laughs> not Biddy, <laughs> Biddy Brew, it's Bitter Brew uh, by G.A. McKevitt. That's a pseudonym for an author known as Sonia Massey. So this is the, actually the 24th book in her long-running Savannah Reed mystery series. It's the first book from that series that I'd read, but last year she released sort of a spin-off novel with one of the characters that I sort of familiarized myself with through that. Maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later. You know, going into it, I knew a little bit about the characters just from sort of a different age and time. But interesting. So not having known Savannah Reed as an adult, we find that she was once an officer. She's now a private investigator. Her roots are really Nancy Drew. She knew from a young age that this is what she wanted to do. Um, And now we visit her as an adult solving crimes. And her friend, the coroner, Jennifer Liu, stops by in the middle of one night. She is absolutely distraught. And she reveals to Savannah that she had just fudged an autopsy report to cover up what she had thought was her best friend's suicide. Because she didn't want people thinking that that's how her best friend chose to end her life. But then a second body arrived in the morgue and had the same exact cocktail of drugs in his system that the other person died from. And so all of a sudden she realizes this may be murder because there's just no likelihood that they would think to mix those drugs together and have the exact same cocktail in their system. A lot of times I think cozies, there's a harder edge underneath if you look for it. And so really this book is an exploration of sort of rare degenerative and deadly diseases. So the author takes some creative license with the diseases that these characters are afflicted with, but they're based very much on real life degenerative diseases and what people have to go through when they're diagnosed with that type of thing and the struggles that they face. So that's sort of the reality underneath the fiction. So it's really, really kind of interesting to explore that world and, you know, did these people take their own lives? Were they killed? Why were they killed? And then, too, there's that nice mix of the personal relationships that Savannah has um, with her husband. You know, sort of a sub-theme is they've sort of hit a snag in the relationship. And she's worried, you know, is he cheating on me? Is my marriage going to hell or not? Um, and then, too, there's a secondary character, Granny Reed, who a lot of people have loved throughout the series. So she actually is a spin-off character in her own series now. So I mentioned right. an earlier book that I'd read. There was a, a Christmas cozy that came out last year called Murder in Her Stocking. 
Um, yeah, you gotta love the titles, right? Um, but that one featured Granny Reed as a younger protagonist. So cool. you meet her as, I want to say, a 50-something-year-old woman in the 80s in Georgia, and she ends up taking care of this big clan of kids. Savannah Reed is one of them. So you meet the whole family in that series, and then if you read the Savannah Reed series, you see them all as adults and what's become of them. So, you know, Savannah came from Georgia. She's living in California now, but there's still sort of that Southern charm and wisdom that's woven throughout the books. Mm, sounds good. Yeah. 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 I really, I honestly, I liked Murder in Her Stocking even better, but I figured, you know, it's Christmas cozy, so it's not the most timely recommendation yeah. right now. <laughs> but if you read Bitter Brew, you get a good sense of the characters, and you get to meet Granny Reed, and then you'll decide whether or not you want to revisit her in her own series. So I would recommend it. And then uh, my June recommendation would be The Sentence is Death by Anthony Horowitz. And this is the second book in his Detective Daniel Hawthorne series, which came out last year with Word is Murder. So I haven't read this yet, it's, but it's in my pile and I'm, I'm excited for it. I must say. So the case is we have a celebrity divorce lawyer named Richard Pryor, and he is found bludgeoned to death with a bottle of wine. <laughs> But here's wait, the thing. Wait. He doesn't drink. Oh, okay. But somebody beams him with a bottle of wine. Right. Um, and also, it's found that um, he had had some kind of phone conversation, and the last words of his recorded were, you shouldn't be here, it's too late. Dun, dun, dun. So anyway, uh, Detective Hawthorne is called in to investigate, um, but he, of course, has secrets of his own, and he's just a really interesting character. He's not, you know, he's gruff, and he has secrets, and you don't know if you should like him or not. And then Anthony Horowitz himself is like the sidekick. So right. he is a character yeah. in his own uh-huh. books because um, he he's he chronicles the adventures, so to say. So he ends up investigating with Daniel Hawthorne. Um, and it's just kind of funny because the author weaves in some, you know, actual biographical information and some of his own experiences. So there's a little bit of fact, a little bit of fiction. I know that some people didn't like the last book because they said it was really self-indulgent. And I mean, it is self-indulgent, but it's funny. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I actually liked it better than Magpie Murders. I think that was his big book a couple of years ago. But it's just, you know, it's, I found it more contemporary, a quicker read and just kind of, you know, really intelligent. You know, I, I say if you're going to be self-indulgent, you might as well do it all the way. Go for <laughs> it. Right. I yeah. feel like that last book was everywhere. I mean, the cover is really recognizable. Yeah. And, you know. So. Yeah. Wow. People's TBRs are going to be exploding. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, John, thanks so much for coming out and talking with us again you're and making welcome. all these excellent recommendations. Thank you for having me. Do you mind if I mention just a quick couple of events nope. that no, are upcoming. I just want to let people know that CrimeCon, we are doing CrimeCon again. That's Connecticut's mystery conference, all-day mystery conference. The date for that is Saturday, May 18th. It's going to be at the Ferguson Library in Stanford, Connecticut. And the theme this year is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. There's a trifecta <laughs> for you, right? And the great thing about that conference, and you know, Chris, because you've been, is you don't have to pick and choose. You're never missing anything because the programming, it's not concurrent. You just, you basically sit in a large room and you see everything from beginning to end. And so you don't miss any of your favorite authors because yeah. they're not in different rooms at different times. So I think that that kind of makes it unique. And then I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to talk about this yet, but I'm going to. Apparently, I'm going to be moderating a cozy panel at the uh, Otis Library on June 8th at 1 p.m. So that's in Norwich. It also happens to be my birthday, but when do I not work? (laughs) 
you know, they asked me to do it, and I'm like, oh, that's my birthday, but then they told me who the panelists were, and I was like, oh, but these are wonderful people and my friends. So the panelists, as of now, are Roberta Islam, who, under the pseudonym Lucy Burdett, she writes the Key West Food Critic Mysteries, uh, and then Liz McGavro, who we talked about before, who writes the Positively Organic Mystery Series, and also Sherry Randall, who is a newer cozy author, but she lives in Connecticut as well, and she writes the uh, Lobster Shack Mysteries, which are a lot of fun, and they always make me hungry. And the hysterical <laughs> thing about her is apparently, if I remember correctly, she's allergic to lobster. Oh, oh my god! She, she was researching these books that she now writes. Uh, um, wow. So yeah, so that's going to be Saturday, June 8th at 1pm at the Otis Library in Norwich, and that should be a lot of fun. And just all you have to do, entry is a birthday present for John. That's right. Yes. A book. Bring a gift. Bring me a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Sure, thank you for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) They're both looking at me like I'm supposed to say something. The end. end. (laughs) No, thank you, John. Yeah, thank you. Great to chat with you. Yeah. All right. Happy Happy reading. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.